Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, irregular period, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Nicole Wegman, to our show today. Nicole is the founder and CEO of Ring Concierge, a jewelry company that's making luxury accessible to the masses. Nicole started the brand in 2013 after personally going through the engagement ring shopping process and couldn't find a brand or company that she really resonated with. Either they were too expensive or too impersonal. So it was at this point that Nicole realized there was a void and need in the market and decided to launch a diamond ring centric business despite never working in the jewelry industry. Now, almost 10 years later, the company has doubled its growth year over year into a multi-million dollar business and they've been profitable from year one without taking any outside funding. We talked to Nicole on a whole host of topics from how she used the power of relationship building to break into the jewelry industry, which is largely dominated by men and family-run businesses, how she went from a one-woman show for years building the business to growing her team a few years in, and how her passions and interest in diamonds slowly progressed into her business and how she pivoted along the way. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. So, so excited to be here and chat with you. I'm excited. And big shout out, actually. You have a big fan, Chloe, a friend of mine who actually brought your company up. She's like, you got to have Nicole on your podcast. I'm obsessed with her brand. And coincidentally, your team reached out. I was telling you this a bit before the interview, but when I was doing research on you, I just, again, appreciate just how real and vulnerable you are about the journey. And you've been doing this for quite some time now. So I think this is going to be just a wealth of knowledge for so many of the women listening. So again, it's such an honor to have you on. And before we go through your storyline, I'd love to start with a question. You've kind of touched upon this in prior interviews, but what do you think are some of the top fears that people have that prevent them from really getting started? I think one of the biggest fears is the most obvious one, and it would be failure. I think people are nervous to start a company because what if it doesn't work out? And how does that make me look? And, you know, will I have lost money? Is it going to be embarrassing? You know, am I like a quote unquote failure? And I think any, you know, successful entrepreneur took a really big risk and failure was a very real option. And it's just part of it. And you kind of have to get over it. Most entrepreneurs do fail. It's fine. There's so many opportunities to try new things and think about new things. And one of the single best characteristics you can have when you're starting a company is the ability to be resilient. Because even let's say, you know, the company itself doesn't fail, you're going to have tons of small failures throughout the way. And you have to be okay with them, brush it off, figure out how to pivot, but most importantly, have to learn from them because otherwise you can't grow. And you are really just, you know, figuring things out and kind of working in the dark in the beginning. And so, so much is going to go wrong and it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's okay. That's also part of the fun. It's, it's not predictable. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm curious with your own journey before starting the business, which we'll get into in a bit, but how do you think you've built the resiliency? Is it something that you really had from your childhood or upbringing or really just full-blown starting the business? You really had to show up and that was kind of your training in terms of the resiliency factor. I think it's a combination. I think I'm naturally a confident person. I suppose I have been my whole life, which helps, you know, when you're confident, you usually think, oh, I can do whatever and it'll work out. So that's a piece of it. But the other piece has definitely been learned and little mistakes in the beginning or, you know, clients that didn't end up buying for me or whatever it may have been felt like such a big deal. And I was so upset by them. And then they happen enough. And then you realize, I don't care. I've done this before. And then there's bigger problems you start to you know face. And then the little ones really seem like nothing. And you just kind of learn and grow from it and realize it is part of the job. Part of the job is to have things go wrong and keep moving forward. 
So I'm very comfortable with it. And I think probably most people that have started their own companies and have been doing it for some time get very comfortable with it as well. 100%. And I think a lot of people glorify entrepreneurship. And I think you just being real and obviously coming from someone who's has a very successful company growing year after year, you're even saying from the early days, even to now, you're still dealing with many failures or difficult moments. So just setting the expectations, I think is so key because you know, we all go through it and you're just not alone if you're starting something from scratch. So I think that's super fundamental. So let's talk about your life a little bit before entrepreneurship, which I find fascinating. You know, you went to college with the aspirations of being a doctor and so much change, kind of like the first and second semester when you were there. But tell me more about what you thought your life was going to look like and kind of what shifted once you arrived in school. Yes. I mean, if we're being honest, the reason I applied to a bio program and I did get in as a bio major is because I just wanted to make a lot of money, like transparently. And I was like, okay, doctors make money. And then I think I Googled which doctors make the most money. And it was an orthopedic surgeon, which is literally like a bone surgeon, which I would be terrible at. I was like, great. That's what I'll do. No problem. I'd always been kind of a girly girl and super into fashion and all of that leading up to school. I don't know what this thought process of mine was. And then very quickly on within a few months of being in college, I was like, wow, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not going to be an orthopedic surgeon and switched my major to fashion. So it was fiber science and apparel design, which was exactly the right fit for me. I think I got caught up in wanting, I guess I got caught up in determining or thinking about success around money and less so about what actually makes me happy. And what's interesting about that is you learn that so early in your not even career, like in your studies, you know, for me, I was killing myself in finance because I was chasing the money for years. And later I was like, this means nothing. Why am I killing myself for no apparent reason? But it's super fascinating because I actually was going to go into fashion as well. And I remember my dad specifically, and actually a lot of people. So I want to get your thoughts. They were like, you're not going to make any money in fashion. It's so hard. You have these aspirations to move to New York, but like you can't even afford to live. Like, why would you do that? So I didn't go down that route. But how did you really shift that perspective? Because I'm sure you heard that quite a bit as well. And for a young person going into college, already thinking about money, that's like such a big shift. I got the exact same feedback. And, you know, part of it isn't wrong. The salaries in fashion are typically quite low, especially in the beginning. I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer. I was like, great, I'll take the design major. And my mom was, she's very smart and she really guided us. She was comfortable letting me move forward with fashion, but she's like, don't do design do the business side because you're going to have a lot more opportunity if you stick to the business side. And it's also more of a transferable skill if you decide you don't want to be in this industry anymore. Whereas you gra- if you graduate with a fashion design major, you can only really get one kind of job. Not to mention I didn't have the talent. Like I could hardly draw. So I don't, I don't know what I was thinking there. Leave that behind with my um, you know surgeon role. So I graduated having had to take business classes and you know, reading all these Harvard case studies and all of these things, which really set me up in many ways to do a lot of things with my career that weren't necessarily fashion focused. Yeah. And I know you ended up ultimately getting pretty incredible jobs in corporate, right? You're working at Macy's and Bloomingdale. So, you know, maybe at a high level, what were some of the biggest learnings you had from that time period in your life? I think those are really great companies to start out at because the training was extremely formal. In both of those roles, I had to go through executive training programs that were many months long, where they really get you up to speed and specialized with the role and department you're going into, but also kind of like how to be an adult. You know, when you graduate college, you've never really had to be an adult. You lived with your parents and then you went to college and like, we all know what that's like, total free for all. And I had jobs my whole life, but they were, you know, hourly, like, basic jobs, worked retail, whatever it may be, I never had anything corporate. And so going through these executive training programs really set the standard as to what companies are looking for in quality employees. And although I work at a much smaller company now, and it's more of a startup vibe, having that 
really formalized background, I definitely think set me up for success and really shifts how I run this company because we don't run it like a startup. You know, we do have a lot in place that I learned from those jobs. I love this because I think so many people, when I was looking to make the transition from corporate to startup life, you know, before I even started my own business, they're like, you don't have transferable skills or you're not cut out for that entrepreneurship life. And I think similar to you, anyone who's in corporate right now, there's so many skills that you're learning. And I think, like you said, like really being an adult and having the right structure, having the right formality when needed, right? When you're working with clients or larger vendors or whatnot, you kind of learn these skills that you don't realize can actually be a superpower when you're nimble and you're building something from scratch. So I think what you said is super key. And I hope it encourages people who might feel like they're not the right fit in startup world because of their experience in corporate. It can only be, I think, a value add. So, you know, you have this, these incredible jobs, you're going through this training, it seems like the right next step for you. At what point did you realize, you know, I don't know if this is a right thing for me. I don't know if I want to be in corporate anymore. I had been doing it for about six-ish years at that point, which I know looking back is not that much time, but at, at you know, age 26, it felt like it'd been forever. And I was working at these huge companies. And what I didn't like about them were all the things that you know, don't happen in startups. They're very slow, very bureaucratic. You know, lots of politics took place. If you wanted to change something or switch your career path, it was near impossible. And so I didn't like any of that. I loved the product. I loved the fashion industry. I loved retail. I loved understanding customer behavior, but I didn't really like working for these big department stores. And so I knew I wanted to make a shift anyway. And then cut to I'm getting engaged. And like most women, we are secretly the drivers in this whole process. You know, we're putting the pressure on our partners. We're sending him pictures of what we want. Or if you're me, like I was straight up in the diamond district trying on rings like without him, didn't need him, cares. <laughs> and I never thought about jewelry at all as being a career path because it's a very, you know, closely knit industry where it's really family run, it's passed down generation after generation, and it's difficult to break into. So after I went through this process of you know selecting my ring, I realized, oh my God, there's this huge opportunity for someone, a female, God forbid, in this industry and younger who understands millennials and how we, how we like to shop. So it was a very easy thing for me to leave my job at Bloomingdale's because I already wanted to make a change, but I just had never thought about starting my own thing. And I had never thought about jewelry. So really going through your own process, you had this light bulb moment already in your career. Timing was working on your side because you're already thinking about shifting, right? And taking that leap into whatever it was. But what I find interesting about your quote unquote entrepreneurial experience is it was kind of like a slow progress to you ultimately starting the business. And I know it didn't start off as this D2C company where you're selling products. So tell me more about those early days and how you kind of got your feet wet into, okay, this is really going to be the next step after I officially leave my job in corporate. Yeah. So I didn't set out to start a company. You know, like I said, I kind of stumbled upon the idea, which I do think is how 99% of really good products or companies start. You know, there's a lot of people today that say, I want to be an entrepreneur and they kind of back into an idea. I really went about it the opposite way. So I was then married to my husband because I'd, you know, gotten engaged and married during this process. And we really talked about it. And we're like, okay, we don't want to spend a ton of money because this might really not work. Who knows? So I read the book, The Lean Startup. I don't know if you've ever read it, but you know, there's a lot of different ways or theories you can approach how to start a company, but I really followed that. And we spent very little money. I think I put $2,000 of our money into starting the company, which is nothing. It was like to buy a URL and to file for an LLC on LegalZoom, like very basic. And I just kind of hit the streets. Like I figured out the industry. I figured out who to work with, how to get diamonds. I used friends and family as clients in the beginning, and it was super, super slow. And I figured it out slowly and very inexpensively. And, you know, even if it did kind of, you know, quote unquote, fail or go wrong, we really weren't out of much money and I could always just go back to fashion. So it was pretty low risk in the beginning. 
Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening listening. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And I think that's super key. And anyone who hasn't read the Lean Startup book, I think it's important. And I talk a lot about this and it's very similar to how I launched a business because you're like, I don't know if it's going to land. Let me just figure this out. I don't want to spend too much money or raise money when it's still just an idea. But you know, in the early days, you were kind of acting just as a concierge, right? I mean, what was the business plan, if you even had one back then, of what your services were? I don't even know if I had a business plan. It's a good question. If I did, it would probably be hilarious to look at. It never crossed my mind to raise capital. We've still never raised capital. This was really just something I thought I could do and do well. And I didn't need it to be this big blown up company that I was going to exit one day. I didn't think about it that way. So the reason it's named Ring Concierge is because I thought, okay, great. All of these you know, men need to buy engagement rings in New York City and it's a super weird, scary process and the diamond district is sketchy and I will be that female perspective for them and understand how to navigate it and help them create their rings the way like a concierge would operate. So that's the initial concept. Very quickly as the business grew, which was simply through referrals and at that point, Instagram, I was just kind of ramping up there people wanted more. Like, I love my ring. I love my service. Well, now I want gifts and now I want that. And so the business evolved with customer needs. And that's when we launched the whole D2C website. When I say we, me. Yeah, I was, was going to say it was still like one person then. Right? Years. Yeah. And I'm so used to saying we now, but like I was alone in my apartment doing these things for many years. But that's how it evolved. It always evolved with what customers wanted. It wasn't me 
just, you know, saying, how do I blow this up and make this bigger? There was demand for it. Also, you starting out with testing the idea or, you know, not even testing, using your services with friends and family starting out that you can really like refine the process. And it was a slow growth for you, which I really appreciate. And one thing you mentioned earlier in the interview, and we've had a lot of women on the podcast who have been in different aspects of the jewelry business. It is very male dominated, like very much a family business. So how did you kind of break into that and really find maybe your mentors or people who kind of help guide you with this new business that you were thinking? Yeah, I mean, as much as I you know don't talk the highest of the industry, and I usually have some things to say that aren't so flattering about the industry, that doesn't mean everyone in it aren't, you know, that everyone in it is difficult to work with. There are definitely a few people who I found very early on who were a little bit younger and more modern in their thinking, and they you know, wanted, of course, like their families were in it. That's always part of the deal. They were taking things over from their dad or they'd always been in the industry or whatever, but they understood what I was trying to do and how it could be different in a good way. And so I just kind of buddied up with them really early on and said, will you teach me everything? And will you help me figure out how to get diamonds? Because no one's going to give me a diamond. Who am I? And I'll give you a cut of the profits. And that's how it worked in the beginning. And I used their offices. I used their inventory. I used their manufacturers because I didn't know how to ha- how rings needed to be made. And I just gave them a cut of the profits and learned as much as I could. I love that. And I think it just shows the power of relationship building, right? You were doing that so early on. And I'm sure even now, like 9, 10 years into the business, it's still a key aspect of it. But you've highlighted a few things. You know, you found people who are like-minded, you gave them a cut of the profit. So there's some incentives for them. Any other learnings you have in terms of really building that relationship? Because I think sometimes people don't put themselves out there and aren't really harnessing these opportunities. And so much of even my journey was all through relationships like this. So I'd love to just get your thoughts. Any other things that stand out in terms of why you were pretty successful so early in your business when it came to relationship building? That's a good question because I'm naturally not, I can be kind of introverted when it comes to strangers. Like I'm not the type of person at a, at a party that just goes up to everyone and says, hi, that I don't know. Like I feel awkward. I need someone with me. I need like a quick glass of Chardonnay, but I guess I just kind of forced myself to do it because I couldn't operate the business without it, especially in an industry like diamonds where everything is relationship based. I really just truly hit the pavement on 47th and talked to people and figured out who I could, you know, trust and just broke out of my shell, forced myself to do it. But also part of that is coming from Bloomingdale's where I was in the buying department. You work with vendors all the time. That's a big part of that job is building the relationships, the vendor relationships, and they had to be positive. You know, even if you are the person placing all the buys and hold the power, you really depend on that being a good relationship on both sides. So I did learn all those skills when I was at Bloomingdale's for sure. That's great. And I think, again, a lot of people have expectations of themselves, like, I'm not an extrovert. And I love that you just kind of push yourself outside your comfort zone. And of course, I think that training in your past job helped, but also you were so fired up and passionate. And sometimes when you have to do something, it'll kind of push you outside your comfort zone, right? Like once you put things in motion and you start executing, I think is key. So just kind of hearing how that impacted your journey is super helpful. So you kind of mentioned, you know, you were very early on Instagram. That was helpful for you to build a community. You were hearing people wanting more product from you, which is how you shifted from concierge service to DDC. How did you really create that awareness starting out? Because you're still self-funded, right? Like you were not spending money on ads early on. So how did you really think about those early days of really creating awareness and the growth that you had? I really took advantage of Instagram kind of in its golden days. It's a lot harder now and it's a lot more expensive to grow on Instagram than it was nine years ago. And it was right when we were all using it personally, but businesses were just trying to figure it out. And the fashion world had gotten on there, but luxury had not. You know, this was back when luxury didn't even sell online. You know, it was, I mean, I I still don't think some brands sell online, but like it was unheard of that you could like check out online to buy a Balenciaga bag type of thing. It wasn't happening back then. And the jewelry industry surely was not using social media because they hardly, you know, a lot of them hardly use computers. Like I'm not even saying that to be mean. It's the truth. Like it's very, very old school. So I was one of the first Instagram accounts that was showing jewelry and showing bridal. And there was clearly 
desire to see that content. And so it grew fast and it grew free. It was just my time that it took. I used myself as the model. You know, I cost $0. So that's a great price point for a model. And I don't think we started doing paid marketing. And this is like crazy until maybe like 2018. And the company started in 2013. So that was all just through organic Instagram growth and referrals. Amazing. I love this because I do think you can build it, especially when you have a good and unique product. And of course, you were early on Instagram, but you still had the fundamentals of great product, great service, word of mouth, right? And just referrals is so key in any business. And I know, you know, one thing that you also realize, and I'm curious when this kind of came to you, but you realized through posting, you know, humanization of the brand is so key. And you've really stepped in and shared a little bit more about that. But I'd love to hear what does that mean to you? And how have you kind of shifted your content strategy around that? And is it still relevant today? So during the early days of the pandemic, we weren't obviously in the office. I'd always shown myself on Instagram, I should start there, but it wasn't the key strategy. But during the early days of the pandemic, we're all stuck at home. The company is still operating. It was definitely a mess how it all had to happen logistically, but we were still going. And I started showing more more of myself on Instagram stories because it was difficult to create any other type of content when you're not you know, living a normal life. And we very quickly realized that the engagement on stories would spike whenever I would go into anything more personal or be really honest about something that... I don't want to say controversial, but like maybe other people aren't touching on. And it slowly became an intentional strategy to show more and more of myself. And you could even see from the DMs, you know, you get 10 DMs about diamonds and 50 DMs about what shoes are you wearing? So clearly people, yeah, clearly people cared, but like, great, this is something, you know, we can easily do show more of it increases transparency. Here's how all the things are running behind the scenes. And transparency for a luxury good is super important, especially diamonds, because it builds confidence in the purchase. And that you know increases conversion, increases loyalty, decreases how much we have to spend on paid advertising. So it's definitely still a very big part of our strategy because you know since we do have a personality that's behind the company, why not use it? Many brands don't have that advantage. That is interesting. And I'm, I'm cracking up because in the early, you know, you're like, it costs zero. I'm doing so much content for my business. I was like, oh, like cost zero dollars, but it's just easier access. But I'm curious, you were talking about, you know, more personal things. People had questions really about you and the person behind the brand. Were you talking about things outside of kind of like the jewelry industry or was it all kind of related under that umbrella when you were just beginning to chat more? totally outside. You know, we talk, I talk about what I eat, what I'm doing, you know, with my family, where I'm going to dinner with my girlfriends, everything and anything. I think what happens as our followers, a lot of them started to relate to me like, Oh, I eat at that restaurant. I also like to ski or whatever it may be. You know, I like her clothes. I like those shoes. We could be friends. You know, that's, I think how they're viewing it. And that's great because then they feel so connected and so engaged and so loyal to the brand. Because if you think about most jewelry brands, especially some of the big heritage ones like up and down Fifth Ave, who even owns it? You know, who's behind this? They don't have the ability to create that connection the way we can. And starting out, were you doing these types of, and even to this day, are you keeping it mostly on stories or are you doing posts as well that are kind of non-related to like ring concierge specifically and more about you? Just stories. We're keeping it to stories. And then the grid is really much more product focused, more formal, you know, a little more professional looking. And stories is where it's kind of fun and engaging. And I think that's how most people are are using Instagram these days anyway. I think the grid is becoming increasingly less important. And it's more of like a quick snapshot visually of who you are as the company. And then everybody's just living in stories. No, 100%. And I'm curious, you know, this, and I'm bringing this up because this is something that we've been thinking a lot for my brand and I haven't really stepped into talking more about my life, but you're right. Like people will message, what lipstick are you wearing? You know, and I'm talking about like health, but people are curious about who's behind the brand. So I think that is super important. Do you find it tough to kind of show up online, but obviously you're still the CEO and you're dealing with all the operations and running your team. Like, How do you kind of split your time between the content piece and the other 90% of your business of running the business? It is very difficult. And I think this is what people don't realize when they look at 
the social media. It looks so fun, so easy. You know, she's running around, she's wearing nice clothes, blah, blah, blah. Well, that is all basically in addition to the job I have of running a 50 plus person company. So the balance is tough. You know, we do have a marketing team and they help me out when it's not stories about myself and we're just showing products or new launches, you know, they'll help, they'll post all of that, but they can't take my outfit of the day pictures. They can't take content of my baby. Like I have to do that. And so that balance is still something I'm trying to figure out. You know, I'm on, on weekends. I can't not take content all weekend. And my job is not an influencer. I'm not a blogger. That's not the only thing I'm focusing on, but it has to be layered in. And so I can't say I figured out the balance for that because that's the one piece of my job where the work-life balance is still not in a great place. Whereas everything else, I've gotten into a really great place where I'm now working like normal, acceptable hours, finally at year nine. (laughs) I was going to ask when that happened, because obviously, and is it just a function of, I mean, team, you said you have 50 people. Is that really what kind of helped you have a more quote unquote normal, you know, work schedule. (laughs) Yes. But we only really beefed up the more senior team members, you know, director level. We have a president who's incredible when I got pregnant. So I got pregnant in 2020. I'd been putting off having a baby because I was running this company and I was just like, it's impossible. I work 12 hour days. I work six days a week minimum. How could I ever have a child? But I was getting older and I kind of had no choice. And it was the pandemic. I was like, perfect timing. And so we knew that I had basically 10 months to figure out how to get a team in place who could run this ship without me when I was on maternity leave. And it really kind of lit a fire. So we hired and we hired more senior people, more expensive people than I would have ever hired in the past and just leveled up the team. And what is so great from that, aside from that I now work normal hours, which is you know, personally the best part. I realized that you not always, but kind of get what you pay for. Like if you spend the extra money, if you can and get a more senior hire who has more experience, even though you might think, wow, that's a big salary. I don't know if I should pay that. I have found that they bring so much to the table you get that return twofold by having the right people in the right seats. And when you start out, it's hard to justify paying these bigger salaries because you're not making a lot of money as a company. But now we're really looking at, all right, can we splurge and get someone a little more senior with a little more experience in this? Because we always find it's worth it. I have a lot of questions about this. And one that pops to mind is, and it's interesting because even you being in the business, you know, when you were pregnant, probably it was like seven, eight years, it's still so hard to like pay that money, right? Of bringing in even like senior levels. That's like a whole nother phase that I'm not in. How did you get comfortable around taking that risk for this capital cost? Did you kind of you know, I know you're self-funded as well. Did you think through, okay, we're going to just not allocate funds for, I'm just saying hypothetically, like marketing will take away X amount and we're just going to invest and take this risk in people. Like, or were you just taking a risk and you're like, you know what, we're just going to continue to reinvest even more in the business and we'll see what happens. Like, how did you kind of feel comfortable about this monetary quote unquote risk to really build that team below you? Kind of like everything. Yeah, no, like everything I do, it was it the realization happened slowly. You know, we hired one or two more senior people and realized, wow, they bring so much to the table, they take so much off my plate. And I can actually trust them. You know, this isn't just a doer, this is someone that's strategic. And so then it makes it a lot easier to keep going with that and keep hiring more strategic, more senior hires. But I think the other thing I want to touch on because most people don't realize this even within my own team. And most people think you start a company and it's starting to work. You know, we've doubled year every single year, which really starts to compound at some point. You know, she must be loaded. She's probably taking home so much money. Not true. If you want to grow a business and you don't want to take outside capital, you have to put everything back in. It is the only way to keep growing if you're not interested in fundraising. And so for the first many years, I didn't take a salary. You know, I I was married and luckily my husband could support us. I mean, we weren't like wildly wealthy, but we could afford to say, all right, instead of me taking a salary, if we put that back into the business, that money's going to double because the business is going to double. So why would I take from it? And that's always been our mindset. The mindset is never like a get rich quick thing. It's always been 
pour it back in, use that to hire people, use it to buy, buy inventory and use it for marketing. Those are like the three most important things we're always thinking about. Hiring, inventory, marketing. And we have operated that way and we still do. I take a very small salary. Like I make less than multiple employees here because my focus is the longer goal. And it's not to get rich and run around and shop. It is to grow this company in a sustainable way. So I put as much as I can back into the business every single year. Yeah. And I think that's, like you said, even before I got into my own company and, you know, really this podcast helped me realize like so many of the women, especially if you're self-funded and you have the ability to right? whether you have a partner or you've saved a certain amount of money, however way you want to set up your financials, they are reinvesting every single dollar, right? Like even for me, people are like, oh, you guys are doing so well. And I'm like, any profits that come in, it's just extra help. And you know, at this stage, it's like you start with a part-time contractor, you get another part-time contractor. We just hired someone full-time, you know, last month. But it's really, you know, I just think it's important to talk about. And again, the realities of if you want to self-fund and continue to grow and it not be a lifestyle business, it is the realities of it, of you just, you know, constantly putting money in the business. And, you know, one thing I'm curious about, I'm so fascinated and I'm really impressed that you were able to bring on such a solid team within 10 months when you were pregnant. Major props to you because hiring, onboarding, trusting, that's a lot. Would you kind of looking back at the time, would you have started that process earlier? I know obviously you being pregnant kind of, you know, pushed you to do it. But looking back at your younger self then, would this be something you would recommend that you would have done earlier in your journey? Or was the timing of it perfect? No, definitely should have done it earlier. I was trying to be scrappy, which you have to be, but perhaps should have invested more in the employees and just you know kind of sucked it up financially. I was trying to be scrappy and I was always trying to look for more junior hires who I could just get to kind of try to do everything, but they really didn't know what they were doing because they'd never done it before. And in the very beginning, that's great, right? You want these scrappy employees who are willing to pivot a million times and work out of your apartment and put in the hours and they think it's so fun. That's great. You know, you're not going to get someone super corporate and experienced to come sit in your apartment and work with you. It's not realistic. So for the beginning years, it was great. You know, it was inexpensive and that's how we did it. We'll hit a point in all businesses. And I actually learned this from a talk I listened to with Jessica Elba. And she went through this exact same thing with her executive team. There is a point when the business grows to a certain size where your early hires might not be the right fit anymore. They were great for the early years because they were scrappy and helped you grow, but they aren't the best fit when you need to professionalize and you need to start hitting huge numbers and you need to be more corporate and run a team of 50 plus people and whatever it may be. And so it's almost like a natural change that happens where they realize it's not really the right fit for them anymore and they may choose to leave or you just start to bring on more senior people, whatever it may be. But I think this probably happens with all businesses. And it's tough because obviously these are also your friends. You spend so much time with them and you've invested in them and they enjoy working with you. But it it slowly started to happen for me. And I think I held on to certain people too long that we should have brought in more senior people sooner and we would have grown even faster. Yeah, it's so tough because like you said, like these people are family, they're coming to your home, like they're part of your life and such a crucial part of the business and as you grow. But like you said, you know, maybe it's not even the right fit for them anymore as a business grows. That's why it's like so good to have these conversations, right, to check in. And, you know, one thing I'm also curious about, you know, you definitely have this scrappy mentality. You're still self-funded. I'd love for our listeners to understand more about why you kind of chose the self-funding path, because even, you know, with your growth that you're seeing today, I'm sure you get outreach quite a bit in terms of, oh, you know, when you're ready, I'm here for you if you need money. Tell me more about how you've thought about it before and how you continue to think about it now in your business. It's a great question. And it's something I like to talk about because I think everybody's goal, I shouldn't generalize, but a lot of people's goal is to start a company, fundraise as much as possible. So they have all this money to spend and don't have to really risk too much personally. They can draw a salary. They can hire a bunch of people and pay for marketing and blow it up. And then the goal is to exit within five years. You know, I've heard this story multiple times when we've been looking at, you know, personally companies we could invest in or whatever it may be. In my mind, that is the perfect recipe for an unsustainable business model financially. There is no way you can grow a company 
the right way if that's how you're thinking about it. So because I didn't think this could become as big as it has, I never thought about fundraising because I just, what was I going to use the capital for? You know, I was like a one woman show for so many years. What did I need money for? And it was profitable from year one. Small, I think, you know, I think I made like 60 grand year one or something. I don't even know what it was, but it was in my mind up or profitable. Great. Let's go to year two. Now cut to every decision I ever had to make because it was self-funded were very fiscally conservative decisions with ROI as top of mind. I couldn't afford to spend the money if I didn't see a return. And that's how I always operated and thought. And that's how I still operate and think. I think because I've just been doing this for nine years and I've seen the result is a highly profitable business that we still don't need to take capital for, even though we're 50 plus employees. And yes, we get calls every single week by some of the biggest you know, funds and VCs and individually wealthy people you could ever imagine wanting to invest. And at this point, you know, I have complete control and complete autonomy. Why would I give that up if we don't actually need the money to keep going? And so there are certain things maybe we could have done and could have done faster, like opening up stores, for example, if we took capital. But guess what? You know, we have one store open and it's great and it's profitable. And we're going to open a second one in a month and that's great. It'll be profitable. And so maybe it's a little slower, but I don't have to answer to anybody. And for me, that's more important. Yeah. And I'm so glad you talked about that. And it's interesting because, you know, similarly, and we're very small, but we had like a very well-known celebrity VC reach out to us to chat with us. And that's like big, right? And I remember some of my friends, you and everybody was so excited. They're like, Yasmin, this is a big deal. Are you going to take the money? Like, I was like, first of all, it doesn't work like that. This is just an intro meeting. But I knew that that's just not the route that I wanted to take. And I think a lot of people can get super excited about the flashy names. I mean, even for you, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of celebrities that you've worked with, but it's just so important to be, you know, to just be in touch with the core values of what you personally want. And I think you've done a really good job because as you grow, you're going to have, like you said, you have people reaching out to you every week, great firms. like, And it's so easy for somebody to veer off and say, oh, you know what? I actually want the credibility of them or their reputation is really good. But I think just you being very stuck in your values and what's important to you, which again, might be different for somebody else who wants to raise money. There's nothing wrong with that. Just different ways of building the business. I think that is super, super key. And you know, one question I'm curious about this nine-year journey that you've been in, what do you think has been the biggest thing that you've really learned about yourself since starting, you know, back in the day? I think, you know, like I mentioned, I was always a confident person, but I think this has built even more confidence in my abilities. I went to Cornell University and everybody there is so smart. And I was definitely far from the smartest person there, often not the smartest person in the room, usually like bottom of the ranks, in my opinion, you know, when it came to grades and, you know, what everyone, the amount of time they spent studying and all of that, I certainly was not like this incredible student. I think I like graduated with a B of some kind. I don't know what it was. And I was a fashion major, you know, I wasn't like this math major. And so I never felt that I didn't, you know, I I knew I was like, whatever, naturally somewhat intelligent, but I never really felt that confident in that piece of myself. And I think what's been really great over the past decade of doing this, almost decade of doing this is you realize that everybody has strengths in different things. And I'm really good at what I do. And I'm not saying that in like a toot my own horn thing, but like I've realized it about myself. I'm good at this. I'm good at building a company. I'm, you know, really good at coming up with ideas on how to grow. And I've just gotten so much more comfortable with myself and in my own skin when it comes to kind of my professional success and intelligence in that category in a way that I was always insecure about in college. And even after graduating, I had so many friends go into finance and had these great finance careers. And like I was in fashion retail, you know, just didn't feel good enough. But that's okay because, you know, cut to nine years later, I have a company that's worth a very large amount of money. And I got there not by having A's in school or being in finance, by just be, being really good at this one thing and running with it. 
And I love this because I think a lot of people, so you did mention you had confidence just starting out, you know, as a child, you had that innately in you, but you didn't necessarily have the confidence of being a CEO and running this business that came through the process of doing it. And I think so many people are waiting until they're confident to take that leap and start the business. And you are just getting to that place because you have been hitting the pavement for nine years. Like that is a long time in quote unquote startup world, right? And now you feel the confidence. So I just want to highlight that because I think a lot of people wait until they are confident. And I think just through your own journey, you have continued to build that from the actions of doing it, right? Versus thinking about it. And one thing you touched upon, which I think is awesome, is that you are really doubling down on your superpower and what you're good in, right? I think that also sustains your joy factor and you just running this business for so long. But what would you say were maybe some of the weaknesses that you have? And how did you deal with that? Because there's so many things, especially starting out in the business that you unfortunately have to do, even though it is your passion and whatnot. But what would you say would be some of the weaknesses and how have you overcame those? This is, I think, a great question. And I think what everyone should always be focusing on, you know, every, people love to talk about their successes, but I think understanding what you need to improve upon, and it doesn't always mean you yourself have to get better at them, is the most important piece in growing. I think something that I've gotten really comfortable with over the past few years is being okay with, and not even okay, like outward about it, that I am not an expert in all the different areas. And I don't know more than many people about different topics, and I need to bring them in to help me. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want everyone around me to be experts in their categories and to be so smart that I'm constantly learning from them. And at things that I'm not strong at, get rid of those. Give that to somebody who is strong. Like, yes, I need to know what's going on and I need to manage it at my level, but I shouldn't be the one that's coming up with our financial plans for the company. Like, I'm not even good at math. That's horrible. And I did that for so many years in the beginning. It should have never been me. And now we have this incredible director of finance who's constantly like worried about, are we spending too much money? And that's great. And bringing in consultants, which I know you mentioned, like, I started by having a lot of consultants and 1099s because I couldn't afford the level of hires I wanted. I still do that. We have operational consultants who are working with us nearly full-time at this point who are just operational geniuses and look at everything we do and pick them apart. We have you know, legal consultants, marketing consultants, people who are experts, use them because you... A, are not an expert in everything. You're not the smartest person in the room always, and you shouldn't want to be. And you should be super open about, I don't know how this piece works. I'm not afraid to say it, but you do. So can you come in here and help me and teach me what I need to know? But more importantly, take it off my plate so I can focus on the things I am really good at. And did you always have that mentality when you were bringing those experts in? Like, you know, or was it kind of tough and something you learned like, okay, I got to let go and I'm not the smartest person? Or did you always kind of think that way? No, I think it was a realization when things started to get out of my control in different areas. Oh, wait, I'm not good at this. I thought I could do it. I thought it would be simple. I'm terrible at this. I need help. And the first consultant I ever brought in was for HR. And her name was Katie, or is Katie, I should say, because she is now our president, which Amazing. we'll get there in a minute. Yeah. So she helped me manage the employees. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure the like paperwork was not as good as it should have been when hiring and blah, blah, blah. So she came in and she was like, you're a mess. I'm going to clean this up. And evolved into showing me that she could do so much more than just HR. And then she came on full time in 2020. And now she's the president of the company. But it was the perfect example of having someone come in that knows what they're doing in an area you don't and taking it off your plate and then making the company so much stronger because you're not the one managing it anymore. I think that's super interesting because you don't necessarily hear that in terms of like the first big hire being HR. And I think that's super interesting because I think sometimes, and I have a good friend that's in HR and she's always telling me like, we do a lot more than just like, quote unquote, the administrative stuff. Like culture is so important. And I know, you know, you've worked in companies where you probably didn't love the culture. I've worked in enough companies where I'm like, now with this business, I never want it to be at that point. So I love that you kind of hired someone in HR to grow the team, because I'm sure at that point you were growing quite quickly, right? You had a lot of people, contractors or not. And one thing that also stands out, and I, th- I want to bring it up because it's something that I'm also thinking about getting myself out of. When you're so used to doing everything yourself, you forget that like 
there is someone that is better than you that you can pull in to bring something. And it's not a function of me wanting to do everything. You just get stuck in your ways. And you are always like, shit, like as we grow, I'm like, okay, now I got to figure that out this. Now I got to figure out this. And my husband reminds me, it doesn't have to always be all on you. And like, it just reminded me because you were talking about as you continue to grow, like you were not able to take control of every little aspect. And I think that's a real reality, you know, even when your business grows at a smaller scale that I just want to call out because it could be a lot of pressure, right? That you put on yourself. And the pieces will start to fall. You know, you hit a certain size in the beginning, like if you're self-funded or whatever, like you're, you're going to have a tiny team, but the second you get a little bit bigger and you're still trying to do everything and be the doer, pieces will start to fall and you have to figure out how to delegate and have other people come in and take those over. Yeah. No, it's like too many moving parts for you to even handle. My brain hurts to even think about it at like scale. (laughs) But, you know, and something else that you have also talked about is that, you know, you've mentioned that you've always operated well under stress and emergency situations. And I think that's such a great quality. But, you know, nine years into a business, how have you kind of maintained or sustained you know, yourself staying sane and like not hitting burnout because, you know, as much as we all think like, okay, we're so solutions oriented, this is what we have to do at a certain point, I would think it kind of catches up with you. But how have you dealt with that? If you have at all, it all comes down to when I grew the team, you know, starting in 2020, when I was pregnant up until then, I would say I was just living burnt out. Like I was just operating off of adrenaline, drinking so much coffee, like hardly sleeping. I didn't really care. I think I thought it was like so great, but it was definitely unhealthy. And I did that for years, like years and years. And then it all started to dissipate as I increased the more senior hires who could take things off my plate. And I trusted them. You know, it's not just a matter of how many bodies can you hire? It's can you trust these people enough to really let go and have them, you know, have some form of autonomy in their role? If not, it's the stress is still on you. Like, yes, of course, like we have big goals we're trying to hit and I'm, you know, in charge of growing it all and being strategic at the highest level. But I trust all of the directors and, you know, our president is incredible and I can punt things to them and say, here's what I want to do. I want to open up two stores next year and they make it happen. And I know they can happen. So that is a huge stress relief. And I think it wasn't until these people joined the team that I could really say I started to like calm down. Otherwise I think, no, I would definitely, definitely be in like a very, very poor mental state right now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no, it's tough. And it's something I think a lot about, and I know in another interview, you know, you mentioned even with your husband, you're talking about work like on the weekends. Like it's just, it becomes just part of your life. I mean, even with me, luckily my husband's also an entrepreneur, so gets it. But like, I love business. I mean, I have a podcast I do for fun talking about business, right? So the household here is like, we're always talking about ideas and hey, babe, I'm doing this. What do you think? Like it is just a strategy session. So, you know, I could see it being all consuming so many years in, especially as a business grows. It's just like becomes who you are. And, you know, I'm curious as you now have a young baby who's now what, two years old? One and a half. Oh my God, she's the size of a two-year-old, but she's one and a half. I love it. How has that, you know, and and I want to say this because similar to kind of how you were thinking about life before kids, I've always been like, how in the world would I have a baby, right? If I'm like running manufacturing, running all these things, I was burning out. Luckily, you know, I did hire someone who has been game changing for me. But I always think about that. Like, how do you fit in a kid when you're working all the time? And I've luckily interviewed enough women to know it's possible and how, you know, your reality changed. But I'm curious for you, just would love to see how it's transformed you if it has. Yeah, I mean, definitely there are major changes. I am not like super mom. I'm not the type of person that wants to try to, you know, take her everywhere. I knew I would be a working mom and I was always okay with that. But The main difference is I used to either sit in the office super late, you know, 7, 8 PM. Like I'd be the last person out. I didn't, what did I have to rush home for? I'd go home and eat dinner at eight, watch a Kardashians episode, you know, (laughs) do more work on the couch at midnight and do it again the next day. And I would do it on the weekends and it's okay because I was passionate about it. And, you know, I didn't have anything else to do once I got home. 
that's the piece of it that's changed. I'm still in the office five days a week, you know, 40 ish hours a week. Like that piece is there. It's the once I get home, I no longer want to think about work. I just want to be with her. And it isn't like I feel like I have to be with her. Like I actually want to be with her. So I was actually telling someone recently who's an entrepreneur and thinking about having a baby. You don't have to give up your, you know, your dedication and your work life, but you very realistically, when you're home, your focus is probably going to be on the baby because you want it to be. So that's the piece of your kind of to-do list that you have to figure out how to shift. However many hours you're normally working from home, that's probably going to go out the window. So just start to plan for that. Can you hire someone that takes that amount of hours off your plate? Can you figure out how to be more efficient during the workday? So what comes 6 p.m. and you head home, you don't have to think about it. That's where I would recommend really focusing on, not that you have to like give up your drive and dedication and focus when you're in the office. Yeah. And I'm cracking up because literally it's like, yeah, after the quote unquote work day, you eat, you chill, you watch TV, you're like doing the emails that you never like got up to. And, you know, it's hard for me to turn off. My husband can do a little bit better. I mean, he's a little bit older in his journey. So maybe it's just through experience. But I always joke, I'm like, yeah, if we had a kid, at least it would be a good balance shutting off my mind because you're with this being who you want to be with. So it's kind of something I now I'm like, okay, maybe it'd be great for us to have kids and would be a good break. Because if you leave me to my devices, like I just keep going and going because you're right. There's nothing to do like, and you're happy. You're like, all right, I love this. Yep. We used, my husband's also an entrepreneur and we used to every Sunday. So we'd like have a Saturday, but then every Sunday we would go, we are members of a members only library on the Upper East Side where the average (laughs) age is probably like 75. That's maybe even too young. So it's like not a fun, cool place, but we would go there every Sunday in the morning, plug in our laptops and work the whole day. Like that's all gone out the window. You know, that is not how we want to spend our Sundays anymore. We want to go to the park with the baby. Um, So it does force you to shut off when you're home. Yeah. And I think what you're saying in terms of like being more efficient, being more clear, like you hear that a lot about women who have kids who have been on the podcast are like, you have no time to mess around. You know, like you are just straight shooting. You got to get your stuff done. And it ultimately only benefits the business. Everyone on my podcast, a lot of women were either pregnant or who had small kids really saw significant growth in their businesses, which I think is such an interesting theme. But it's kind of similar to you. I mean, your business continues to grow. So there's no stopping just because you have a child. That is interesting. And our growth has been like explosive. And a a lot of that, I really should be giving credit to our more senior team members, our managers and directors who didn't exist, most of them before I was pregnant, you know, so you bring the right people on and you're forced to step back a little bit because you're pregnant and having a baby or whatever. And you're right, you probably will see that growth. I love that. And, you know, one thing I also want to touch upon as we kind of close this interview, you've always talked about, and I think you've done a really good job about trusting your vision and your gut. And I think that's, you know, we've, it's kind of been a theme throughout this interview, but how have you gotten better at trusting yourself? Is it something you developed in time or any rituals that kind of help you stay centered as you continue to build this business? I think the key is to not get too caught up in something that is a departure from how you were originally thinking about things. And let me be like a little more specific with an example, because you almost, you brought it up earlier. You know, you have this plan for your company. Let's say you don't want to take on investors or whatever it may be. And then, you know, like what happened with you, there's like a celebrity VC firm or a celebrity investor that comes to you. You get so excited because it's X, Y, and Z person. And you're like, this is amazing. How could I not do something with them? I think taking a beat and really thinking about it, let the excitement die down and then make a decision. I've had things like this happen in the past as well, where I'm like, oh my God, it's so-and-so. How could I not bring them on? Like It would just be so killer to have them be an investor and board member, blah, blah, blah. And then you wait a little bit and you're like, actually, what I thought they could bring to the table isn't worth it to me. You know, I got excited by the name. I got excited by... This person is an expert in this field and they recommended I change our marketing to look like this. And I just wanted to trust them because they're somebody. But actually, I know what our marketing should look like. I know how this company should run. I don't need to bring these people on who really don't know anything about it. So I've gotten excited in the past over big names and I'm glad I never did anything with it because in retrospect, I absolutely would have regretted it. I think that's so key. Just you saying, and this is probably for any important decision, whether it's like something you get excited about or not, you can instantly and instinctually like 
think you want something, but just having some time to pass, right? For you to sit with your thoughts and think about, is that the right move for us? I think is super key versus I feel like as entrepreneurs, we're always used to like jumping in and making a decision quick. That's like one thing I learned is just take a step back, like you mentioned, and just really reevaluate because those, you know, whether it's an excitement feeling or like, oh shit feeling, it will eventually dissipate. And then you can think clearly about the right next step. So I totally agree with you. Well, Nicole, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm a big fan of everything you're building. And I can't wait to continue to see how Ring Concierge continues to grow. But thank you again for being with us. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.